The Thinking Long and Short podcast is brought to you by Perfect Spiral. Joe Miglio and John McCarthy take you on a football journey as they discuss the sport in depth. This 365-day, 24-7 football podcast discusses everything NFL. Off-season, draft, rumors, training camp, fantasy football, and of course, the season. Go and follow that podcast, Perfect Spiral, on Spotify for your weekly updates on the football season as we move into September. Before we get started, hit the follow button and subscribe to the channel on Spotify to help us hit our subscriber goals. With that, let's get right into it. It was a very rough day for the markets on Friday. The Dow Jones dropped over 1,000 points, the S&P 500 down 3.37%, and the NASDAQ was down 3.9% on the day after Jerome Powell's press conference and speech in the Jackson Hole Symposium. But the markets were really rattled by what Jerome Powell had to say in regards to fighting inflation moving forward. The oil markets were basically the only part of the market that was positive on the day. Oil finished the week at 92 spot 89 per barrel. Gold slid after the Powell remarks down 1.2% on the day. Silver took an even bigger hit down 2% on the day. Bonds also sold off as treasury yields rose, which further helped damage the stock market on Friday. But Friday was one of the weakest days we've had in the stock market in quite some time. One of the worst days we've had actually in the past few years going back to the COVID lows in March of 2020. But again, all of the catalyst for this stock market downturn on Friday having to do with the Fed's inflation fight moving forward as we head into the fall months. And I'll cover that in a little bit. But for now, the dollar continues to rise. It's been on a tear against the euro, the Japanese yen, the uh, the uh, Swiss franc, the pound sterling. And the dollar index is now back above $109. The dollar continues to rally, which is causing for stocks and bonds to fall. Now, cryptocurrencies also got hit hard on Friday. Bitcoin, as I'm speaking, is about to break below 20000 again. And again, the biggest risk assets were the biggest losers on Friday. You look at Bitcoin, the ARK Innovation Fund, growth stocks, all got clobbered because inflation continues to be a problem. But what's an even bigger problem is if the Federal Reserve actually ramps up its inflation fight, which in effect will kill the markets. But again, it's interesting that investors did not take solace in bonds during the entire day on Friday when the market was selling off. Typically speaking, if stock prices are falling people will be buying more bonds as a flight to safety as a means of getting into a safer asset. But as we see on Friday, that did not happen. Bond prices collapsed on Friday and the yield on the U.S. 10-year treasury is still above 3%. So what that means is people are not taking a flight to safety in bonds, but instead they're taking a flight of safety into the dollar but again, maybe this is a sign that traders are starting to understand just how bad the inflation problem really is in the economy. And so even though they see that we're heading into a recession and they're now anticipating a bigger recession because of more interest rate hikes from the Federal Reserve, they're still not going into bonds because they're starting to price in 
longer term inflation, which means that bond yields have to go much higher before any investors are going to be interested in purchasing those bonds. And another part of that is that the biggest owner of treasury bonds in the market is the Federal Reserve, and they're starting to ramp up their inflation fight. And they're announcing, as did Powell reiterate on Friday, that they're going to start selling more bonds into the market to try and shrink their balance sheet to combat inflation by shrinking the money supply. So I think some traders were very hesitant to step in and buy bonds here because, again, the biggest owner of bonds in the world is the Federal Reserve. And they're saying that they're about to become a major seller here in September, which starts in a few days. So if you owned a stock like Apple and the biggest owner of Apple, which I believe is Warren Buffett, comes out and says that in a, in a couple days, he's going to start selling a big portion of his stake in the markets, you're going to get ahead of that and you're going to sell your stake in Apple. Well, that's what's happening here with bonds. The Federal Reserve, the biggest owner of bonds in the world, is promising to start sell selling those bonds in September, again, in just a few days. And so a lot of traders are very hesitant to go into bonds. That is why people are selling bonds. And that is causing interest rates in the bond market to rise, which I think is putting a lot of pressure on the gold market, the silver market. It's also helping to keep oil prices subdued somewhat. Oil would probably be rallying even more if interest rates were not rising. But because interest rates are rising, Investors want to own dollars because as interest rates rise, those dollars become more valuable because they generate a higher rate of return. Now, of course, the dollar is next to worthless because even though it's going to start generating more interest, that interest is still not nearly enough to compensate for the high rate of inflation that we have across the U.S. economy. And so therefore, again, even if nominal rates rise, if real rates fall, which is what's going on, right? Interest rates are rising, but the rate of inflation is rising even faster. So real interest rates, which count for inflation, are falling. That is extremely bullish for gold. It's extremely bullish for value stocks. But again, investors have not figured that out yet. Even though value stocks were not hit anywhere near as hard on Friday, they were still going down with the overall markets. And again, Friday was a complete bloodbath. It is very rare to see a 3.3% move in the S&P 500 in one day in either direction, but that's exactly what we got on Friday because of Jerome Powell's speech, which I'll go over in a bit. But first, I want to cover some of the economic data that came out this week. The first piece of economic data that we got was the Flash Services PMI. Anything below 50 here represents a contraction in the economy. We were expecting a 49.8 reading, which again would represent a contraction. And instead, we got 44.1. So we missed the expectation by a big mark. This was a very ugly number. And in order to get a number this low, you would have to go back to March 2020, which again was the exact lows from the pandemic. That's when the lockdowns first began in the economy. So the fact that we got a flash services PMI as low as the March 2020 lows really shows how weak the economy is overall. Now, we also got the flash manufacturing PMI came in slightly under expectations. There we were expecting 51.8. Instead, we got 51.3. So the number wasn't weak overall. In fact, again, in that index, 
Anything above 50 is an expansion in the economy. Anything below 50 is a contraction. So this was a small win, but comparing it to the flash services PMI, the data really is weak overall. And even if you look at the next piece of data that came out on Tuesday, the Richmond Manufacturing Index, there we had a contraction of eight, which again is a very bad number for the overall economy and for manufacturing in general. Now, even worse news for the overall economy came in the housing sector on Tuesday with the new home sales data. There, we were expecting to have 574,000 new home sales. Instead, we only had 511,000 new home sales. Now, this was the lowest new home sales data that we've gotten since April of 2016. So there was a 12.6% decline in housing sales in the housing sector. And again, the housing market is slowing dramatically, but there is a lot of economic activity that is associated with the housing sector. A lot of jobs go into that sector, not only from a home building perspective, but from renovations and construction, uh, home sales, real estate agents, mortgage brokers. There's a lot of economic activity that comes from that sector. In fact, it probably represents a bigger portion of the economy than any other sector. And so, therefore, if the housing market is slowing dramatically, that means the economy is slowing dramatically as well. But again, this was the worst new home sales number that we've gotten since April 2016, over six years ago. Now, we also got core durable goods and durable goods orders month over month. The core durable goods orders strips out automobiles. But there we got a 0.3% increase. So durable goods orders for different types of uh, manufactured goods went up by 0.3%. But durable goods orders, which includes automobiles, was flat, did not go up at all. So what that means is automobile sales are slowing dramatically. Again, I've talked about this. And every time we get this durable goods number out every month, it keeps getting worse and worse for the auto sector. And it brings up a point, why would you want to own auto stocks in a recession? Now, whether or not you believe the economy is in recession right now, which it is, but even if you're in the camp with a lot of the bulls in the market who believe that even though we had two quarters of declining GDP, we're somehow not in a recession, we are certainly about to head into a recession, and I don't think anybody can deny that at this point. Again, we're getting tons of economic data that's coming out extremely weak, and why would you want to own cyclical stocks like auto stocks heading into a recession and with interest rates about to rise, right? That's going to kill a lot of auto demand. You're going to have a lot of weakness in the consumer, and auto sales are about to drop off a cliff. Same thing with home sales. Why would you want to own home building stocks here at the very beginning of what is going to be a very long recession? It doesn't make any sense. Even if you don't think interest rates are going to rise dramatically, there's no growth left in these sectors, right? The auto market, the home building sector, any type of cyclical stocks, there's no reason to own them here because again, the economy is weakening. These are stocks that are very dependent on a strong economy. And the fact that durable goods orders was flat, even though core durable goods orders, which strips out autos was up, is a very bad sign for the auto market and the entire market in general. Now, we also got pending home sales month over month. There, 
we didn't get as bad of a number as expected, but we still got a bad number. They decreased by 1% for the month. So in just one month, pending home sales are now down 1%. Again, the housing market is starting to really slow down here. And this is with interest rates having not risen that much over the past few months. Crude oil inventories came in at less than 3.3 million than we were at last week. So again, that's part of the reason why oil was stable this week while the rest of the markets collapsed. So oil continues to be a very resilient sector of the markets. And again, even though energy stocks, as I mentioned last week, are typically considered cyclical stocks, I think that that is no longer the case because there is an extremely constrained supply of oil in the markets. And so therefore, oil prices are going to continue to stay high. And in fact, they're going to continue to get the benefit of higher prices because of inflation. So the energy stocks, if you're going to own a quote unquote cyclical stock, that's where you want to be. Not in the auto sector, not in the home building sector, not in the financial sector, because those sectors of the economy are about to struggle severely as we head deeper into this recession. Now, we also got a revised preliminary GDP quarter over quarter number. So they revised the second quarter GDP numbers. It initially came out at negative 0.9% when we got the numbers a few weeks ago. They revised it up, so the economy only contracted by 0.6% in the second quarter. One way or another, we're still in an official recession because we had two quarters of negative GDP growth. That is a recession, and even if people want to try and spin it another way, we are in recession, and we're heading even deeper into what is going to be a very long-lived recession, probably that's going to last for several years. Unemployment claims continued to come in around the 240,000 level. We got initial jobless claims of 243,000. So the labor market continues to remain somewhat resilient. But again, we continue to see a solid pickup in initial unemployment claims every week, right? We can't, we, we see that people are continuing to leave the workforce, some more than others, but nonetheless, we keep seeing a, an increase in unemployment claims. And I continue to expect that at some point in the next month or two months or three months that we're going to get a big initial unemployment claims number coming in, especially with the Federal Reserve threatening to raise interest rates starting in September, which starts here in the next couple of days. And the Fed meeting for September is coming up very quickly. So as interest rates pick up, you're going to have employers start to lay more and more workers off, and that's going to cause unemployment claims to rise and unemployment levels to rise. And that's where the pressure is really going to get put on the Federal Reserve to stay the course in fighting inflation. Again, I continue to mention the Federal Reserve is going to continue to raise interest rates enough to give the impression they're fighting inflation, but they're not going to raise them significantly enough to actually stop inflation. And one of the things that's going to stop them from doing that is once unemployment levels start to pick up, they're going to have to choose between unemployment and inflation. And it is my deep belief that they are going to choose to stimulate the economy and help protect employment levels at the expense of allowing inflation to continue to accelerate. Now, we also got the preliminary GDP price index quarter over quarter. 
There we were expecting an 8.7% increase. Instead, we got an 8.9% increase. So again, more inflationary pressures throughout the economy. You know, I keep hearing economists, analysts saying that we have evidence we're at peak inflation, and I see nothing of the sort. People keep referencing this weak economic data that they are saying this weak economic data is signaling that we're at peak inflation because everyone, wrongfully so, is making the assumption that a weak economy automatically will bring down prices. And I've been saying for a long time now that is not the case. We are in stagflation where we're going to have a slowing economy with rising prices. And there is no evidence inflation data wise that inflation is coming down. While people keep saying that a slowing economy is bringing down inflation, it's actually not true at all. In fact, again, if you listen to some of the earnings calls from some notable companies like Walmart, Chipotle, McDonald's, all their CEOs are saying they're about to start ramming more price increases through. And again, I'll get more into that in a little bit, but there is no actual inflation data coming out that is showing that inflation is peaking. The only data that's coming out that investors are pointing to to try and keep spreading the peak inflation narrative is the slowing economic data. But as I mentioned before, that has nothing to do with inflation. Inflation is an expansion of the money supply and it causes a rise in consumer prices because as the money supply and credit get expanded, people can keep spending more and more money. There's more and more demand which means that businesses raise their prices because they can pass higher costs onto their customers and they can also raise their prices to expand their profit margins. And that's exactly what's going on. And one of the pieces of inflation data specifically that we got this week on Friday was the core PCE price index month over month. Now, this is the Federal Reserve's preferred inflation data metric to use. We also have the consumer price index but the Federal Reserve prefers to look at the core PCE price index. And I've mentioned before on the podcast, the reason they prefer this method for measuring inflation as opposed to consumer price index is because this method purposely understates inflation even more than the consumer price index. Now, both metrics understate inflation a lot, but the core PCE understates inflation even more. Now, for the month, we got a 0.1% increase in the change in the price of goods and services purchased by consumers. Now, this excludes food and energy, but prices excluding food and energy went up by 0.1% this past month. Now, of course, a big part of that is the fact that energy prices went down. Even though energy prices are excluded from this number, you have to remember energy prices are a big input cost in a lot of businesses. So a lot of businesses sell goods or services that have oil costs implemented in them. And so to the extent that oil prices did not rise last month, that means that businesses did not have higher costs that they had to pass on to consumers last month. Again, the oil markets have been very resilient. Oil is back on the rise. It's holding above $92, $93 a barrel very solidly. And every time oil gets sold off, you have investors and traders come in and buy the dips. Again, the oil market's been very resilient. And as long as oil is going to continue to be very resilient, so are the inflation numbers throughout the economy. But just to show how much the core PCE price index understates inflation, so far for the year, it is showing that over the first eight months of the year that we've only had 3% 
increases in prices of goods and services in the economy. So that annualized would represent a 4.5% annualized increase in prices for goods and services in the economy. If anybody believes that prices in the economy are only up 4.5% and on an annualized basis and are only up 3% in the past eight months is completely lying to themselves. You go anywhere, you buy an airline ticket, you stay in a hotel, you eat at a restaurant, you go to a sporting event, you buy a new car, you buy food, you buy energy, you buy clothes, you buy electronics. There is nothing that is only up 3% in the economy over the past eight months. It's completely false. And how any economist can actually believe these numbers is completely ridiculous. Prices are up closer to 10, 15, 20, in some cases, 50% over the past eight months. So again, the PCE index is used to completely understate inflation. And that is why that index is the Fed's preferred method of inflation. But again, I want to get to the Federal Reserve in a minute. Just to finish up on the economic data, we also got the goods trade balance for the month. There, we came in at an $89.1 billion goods trade deficit. Again, that is more inflationary policy because we have to pay for those imported goods with either printed money or treasury bonds, which are promises to pay even more printed money in the future. Lastly, we got personal income month over month. There we were expecting an increase of 0.6%. Instead, we got an increase of only 0.2%. The stock market bulls would point to that as a peak inflation narrative, saying that personal income is not rising as much as expected anymore. But even though it didn't rise as much as economists expected, again, it still rose for the month, which means higher producer prices, which means that eventually those higher producer prices are going to have to get passed on to the customer. But if you look at personal income for the year, again, for the first eight months, personal income is up 3%. So that would be a 4.5% annualized rate of increase for personal income. And again, I just went over the core PCE price index. So even if you assume that measures inflation honestly, which it does not, you see that personal income is going up, but it's actually going up at the same rate as goods and services in the economy as measured by the PCE price index. So real income is not going up at all. In fact, real income is going down if you look at the rate of increase in inflation honestly. So cost pressures are continuing to go up for businesses, but yet that's not enough income to offset the rise of cost of living for workers. So the worker is actually getting paid less money because, again, their wages are rising in nominal terms, but they're not rising fast enough to keep up with the cost of living. So in real terms, their, their uh, wages are going down. And that is one of the reasons we got the savings rate, which was the last piece of economic data that I'm going to cover. But the savings rate is at its lowest level since August 2009, which was the literal depths of the financial crisis. Why is it? Why can you say that the economy is strong if the savings rate is at its lowest level since the great financial crisis? Clearly, it's not. Clearly, people are struggling to make ends meet because, again, as I mentioned, people's incomes are not keeping up with the cost of living because personal income is rising, but it's not rising fast enough to 
consider the cost of living increases across the board throughout the economy. And again, why would anyone look at this economic data that I just covered and come to the conclusion that they want to own cyclical stocks? Cyclical stocks is the last place you want to be. You don't want to own auto stocks. You don't want to own home building stocks. You don't want to own restaurants, hotels, airlines, right? Look at some of the stocks on Friday. The, some of the biggest decreases in the stock market were in the cyclical trade. If you look at American Airlines, it was down 4.7%. Carnival Cruise Line down 5.4%. Tesla down 2.7%. Caesars 5.2%. Sunrun down 4.4%. Uber down 3.5%. Even if you look at Apple, which a lot of people don't consider that a discretionary stock, I consider it a discretionary stock, right? It's it's a, it's a cyclical stock, in my view, down 3.7%, Roku down 6.9%, right? You look at uh, a lot of these trades, Darden, which owns Olive Garden, Longhorn Steakhouse, a couple other restaurant chains, down 4.3%. Airbnb down 3.6%, Ford down 3.2%. You know, I mentioned last week, Ford is going to be laying off 3,000 workers in the middle of this recession, and their costs are still increasing to produce their trucks. Ford F-150 Lightning, the materials costs are much higher than expected. So they're raising the price of the F-150 Lightning by $8,500. And again, that product is still, for the most part, in pre-sales. So again, a lot of these cyclical businesses getting hit very hard. Look at the iShares U.S. Home Construction Index down 4.4% on Friday alone. Again, these are what are considered deep value cyclical stocks, the home builders. Again, no reason to own home builders here because the housing market is slowing dramatically. And this is prior to interest rate increases that are coming here in September and October. So again, a lot of these businesses, DraftKings down 5%, Square down 7.7%, DoorDash down 5%, the ARC Innovation Fund, which is a lot of the high-tech speculative growth stocks, down 6.4% on the day alone. All these stocks are getting crushed because, again, they cannot handle higher interest rates. The consumer cannot handle higher interest rates, and that is why personal spending is down month over month, right? Month over month, personal spending increased by 0.1%, but prices have increased by the same amount. And so in reality, personal spending is going down because the consumer is spending more to buy less. And again, the consumer is struggling. The consumer is being impacted by higher prices and higher interest rates. The consumer's portfolio, stock portfolio, retirement accounts, Housing uh, wealth is going away because of higher interest rates, and that is all very bad news for the economy. The last two pieces of economic data we got this week were the consumer sentiment numbers, which continue to remain very low at 58.2. Again, much lower from the 60 and 70s readings that we've gotten over the past couple of years, and inflation expectations for the consumer remain at 4.8% for long-term inflation. This brings me to Powell's speech made at the Jackson Hole Symposium on Friday. Again, this was the catalyst for the stock market collapse on Friday. And believe me, it was a collapse. It was a complete bloodbath in the stock market. Out of the S&P 500, 
five of the 500 stocks in that index were positive on Friday. So 495 stocks in the S&P 500 were lower on Friday, and most of them were way lower because of Powell's speech. Now, the important part of Powell's speech is that, one, he did not have any reporters asking him questions after the speech, which is usually what the case is, because usually Powell comes out, he gives a brief speech, and then he takes questions from economic reporters. But this time there were no questions. And so Powell was not able to walk back a lot of what he said in the speech. Again, if you watch any of the typical FOMC meetings, Powell comes out, he gives a very hawkish speech. And again, hawkish in quotes, because he's not really a hawk. But he gives a speech saying that he's going to be very hawkish, meaning that he's going to raise interest rates high and stick to the course of fighting inflation. But then when reporters ask him questions, he walks that back and says, well, no, we're going to remain data dependent. And so if inflation comes down, we're going to slow the rate hikes. Or if we see the economy slowing down, we're going to slow down on the inflation fight. But this time, since there were no reporters asking him questions, he didn't have that opportunity to walk back what he said in his speech. But what he said in his speech particularly is, one, the Federal Reserve is going to most likely go with a 75 basis point rate increase in its September meeting. Some market participants were expecting only a 50 basis point increase. A majority of people were expecting the 75 basis point increase. So that didn't have too much of an impact on the markets. But what did have a big impact was Powell said to expect a lot of pain. And what he really means by that is for investors to expect that the Federal Reserve, even if the market goes down, is going to continue on its course to raise interest rates. Because even though that's going to hurt the stock market, Powell said he is very concerned about the lower income portion of the economy, the lower middle class and the middle class that is struggling severely because of inflation. Now, of course, he is going to continue to worry about that until unemployment levels pick up. But because he mentioned that traders and investors got very scared, they sold stocks off. Again, the Dow Jones was down 3%, the S&P down 3.3%. The NASDAQ was down almost 4% on the day. So stocks got completely routed. And again, that's because it, it cannot, the market cannot handle higher interest rates. And the only reason the market has risen so much in the past couple of years is because of low interest rates and quantitative easing. So if we are going to go to higher interest rates and quantitative tightening, Again, all that price action to the upside now has to reverse itself and stocks have to price in much higher interest rates in the foreseeable future, which again means stock prices have to come down because stocks are all worth their present value of future earnings discounted to the current interest rate. So if the current interest rate is going to move higher in the next couple months, that means that stock multiples have to move lower. Not only that, but as interest rates rise, that's going to put more pressure on an already weak consumer to keep spending, which means that that's going to put uh, corporate earnings in jeopardy. And so if corporate earnings are coming down, that means stock prices need to come down as well. The one thing that the markets have to hang their hats on so far is that earnings for most stocks have held up somewhat well. And so even the stocks that are missing earnings are some of the smaller stocks in the market, But for the most part, earnings are holding up relatively well. 
But again, if interest rates rise, that means a weaker consumer. That means lower corporate earnings in the future. But because Powell said that the Fed is not going to remain data dependent as people thought they were as far as looking for a Fed pivot to lower interest rates, the markets are now having to price in higher interest rates in the next several meetings. Again, that's very bearish for stocks, very bearish for gold, very bearish for cryptocurrencies. But again, the Federal Reserve is still going to pivot. It's just that they're not going to pivot until the labor market weakens dramatically. But as they raise interest rates, they are going to weaker the labor, weaken the labor market dramatically. And again, unemployment usually lags the economy. So therefore, what I'm saying is if we have a recession, which we're already seven months into a recession, usually job jobs and layoffs start to increase uh, six to nine months into a recession, which again would mean in September, October, November. So we have a lot of layoffs coming in the pipeline. Again, if interest rates go up, the cost of capital goes up. That means that corporations can borrow less money to hire people and increase their their operations, expand their businesses. And especially as the consumer gets weaker, businesses are going to have to prepare for a deeper recession, which means they're going to have to start laying off more workers. But that's what the stock market now has to start discounting again as we move into September, October, November. And it's a very ominous setup for the markets as we move into the fall months. Because again, September starts later this week. Now, there's two big implications of that. One, football season starts, which is a good note. But for the people listening to this podcast, the very ominous note is that in September, and Powell reiterated this, the Federal Reserve is going to start ramping up its balance sheet reduction, which means they're going to start selling a lot of the bonds and mortgage-backed securities that they own on their balance sheet. Now, I've already stated that the Federal Reserve is the biggest owner of treasury bonds in the world. Again, they are threatening to start selling a lot of those treasury bonds into the market. They also own billions of dollars, trillions of dollars of mortgage-backed securities, and they're about to start selling those mortgage-backed securities into the market. So what that means is that interest rates are about to start rising on treasury bonds and for mortgage rates. So again, the housing market is already slowing dramatically. If the Fed starts selling all of their mortgage-backed securities into the market and mortgage rates start to increase substantially from here, go to 6 7 8%, the housing market is going to completely collapse because nobody can afford to buy houses at the prices they're currently at now with mortgage rates at around 5 or 6%. So if mortgage rates pick up, the housing market has to go down. And again, same thing with bonds. As bond interest rates rise, then people are going to show a preference for owning treasury bonds as opposed to stocks. But even more so, people will show a preference to own dollars as interest rates begin to rise. Because again, bonds yields are going to continue to rise as the Fed starts selling them and bond prices have to start pricing in longer uh, inflation expectations, which means bond prices have to go way down from here. So if the Fed continues on this course to start raising interest rates dramatically, the only two safe places to really be in the market would be to be in cash or to short stocks. Now, again, being in cash is very dangerous as well, because 
the Federal Reserve is not going to succeed in getting interest rates higher than the inflation rate. So cash is not a place to be. And shorting stocks, a lot of investors are not suited to short stocks. So what you're left with is you have to basically pick the the best places to be within the stock market because, again, being in cash or bonds is very dangerous, right? And so you have to own the value-oriented stocks. And I think that the value-oriented stocks are going to hold up much better than the growth uh, stock portion of the market, than bonds, than gold, than real estate. But again, this is all predicated on the idea that the Fed does what it has to to stop inflation. Again, they are not going to do that because once unemployment rates start to pick up substantially, they are going to have a lot of pressure to slow down their inflation fight and eventually stop it and come in and stimulate the economy and allow inflation to continue to pick up. Because think about where the consumer is now. The consumer is struggling with inflation and making ends meet, even though by and large, most people are still employed. Can you imagine if interest rates go up enough to put that consumer out of work, but they don't go up enough to slow inflation down? Now you have a consumer who's unemployed, but still struggling with the cost of living continuing to rise. And again, if we're fighting inflation, there are no government bailouts. But that means that the consumer will continue to get weakened. And that's why I know that the Federal Reserve in the coming months is going to have a lot of pressure on it to continue to stop its inflation fight and continue to stimulate the economy to get it out of recession. But Moving on from Powell's speech, which again was the catalyst for the stock market declines on Friday, that is going to continue to put pressure on stocks as we move into September. Again, the September Fed meeting is still a couple of weeks away. And so there's probably going to be a lot of weakness in the stock market in the next couple of weeks as we get to the next Fed speech. So stocks can are going to make their next leg down in this bear market. Again, they've already started that on Friday. The S&P 500 was down as much as 20% this year. It then rallied back to be down only 10%. Now the S&P is down about 15% again on the year. Again, we're going to go much lower. We're going to hit those lows and we're going to make the next leg in the bear market. And the S&P 500 could be down as much as 25 or 30% as we move into the next month or two. Because again, now there's no reason for stocks to rally. If earnings hold up, they're certainly not going to increase. And again, multiples now have to come down because the stock market has to start pricing in higher interest rates, which makes makes the present value of future earnings for stocks to the discount rate less valuable. Going from that into earnings that were reported this week, we got earnings from some notable companies, although earnings season for the most part is over. But We got earnings from both Salesforce and Splunk, which are two cloud software companies. Salesforce missed on the expectations as well as Splunk. Both of those stocks were killed. Again, those are both stocks that are priced for growth, but actually have businesses that are starting to show declines, again, because the economy is heading into recession. And a big part of this economy is cloud software spending from businesses. And those businesses that have been spending on cloud software now have to start cutting costs because they have to start anticipating that this recession is going to get more severe. So those two stocks got hit hard on their earnings. Snowflake was the one positive sector uh, company in that sector. They actually reported a beat 
on their expectations for earnings. And so that stock rallied. Palo Alto Networks, the cybersecurity firm, also beat on expectations, and they're starting to grow into their valuation very nicely. But they're a much more defensive tech stock than Salesforce, Splunk, and Snowflake are. So Palo Alto Networks is sort of an outlier in the tech space in this market. But even if you look to Zoom, Zoom missed on their expectations as well. That stock got clobbered, was down 8% the following day from their earnings. Now, again, their revenues continue to fall short of forecasts. And if you think of Zoom, they've probably seen their best days. Again, their product is not really proprietary, right? They're competing with Microsoft. They're competing with other businesses, uh, Google. They don't really have anything that's proprietary. And even their product itself, they haven't figured out how to actually monetize it properly. So Zoom down big after their miss on earnings. NVIDIA was also down. Again, they've been guiding down on their business because they're seeing a big slowdown in the economy. So even though they guided down, they still were negative on the week. And again, this is another cyclical stock. There's no reason, again, to own a lot of cyclical stocks right now because the economy is continuing to slow. And there is going to be several years ahead where the economy continues to struggle because the consumer is going to continue to struggle. Speaking of the consumer continuing to struggle, we also got earnings reports from Best Buy, Big Lots, and Dick's Sporting Goods. Dick's Sporting Goods beat on expectations, but Best Buy and Big Lots are both struggling right now. Again, Best Buy is struggling because people don't have the discretionary or disposable income to buy electronics like TVs and whatnot. And so therefore, Best Buy and Big Lots are struggling because they sell a lot of discretionary products and they rely on the consumer to have a lot of disposable income left. But at the end of the month, after people pay for food, energy, insurance, all the things that are necessities, they don't have any money left for discretionary products. The only way they can buy these discretionary products is they can continue to swipe their credit cards, which again, If we're going to have a higher interest rate environment in September and October, which Powell is saying we are, that means there's going to be less ability for the consumer to open a credit card, to open a uh, an auto loan or a personal loan. So that means that some credit is going to go away, which is going to make the consumer weaker. So Powell and the Fed, by raising interest rates by 75 basis points in their next meeting, and then by another 50 or 75 basis points in the meeting after that. They're going to raise interest rates enough to put the economy in a more severe recession and hurt the consumer, but they're not going to slow in. They're not going to raise interest rates enough to slow the consumer down. So that means, again, we're heading for stagflation, a slowing economy with higher inflation. And again, in that type of, of an economy, the best asset you could probably own would be gold, because in that economy, gold prices might go down a little, but stock prices are going to go down a lot more. And even though gold prices might go down a little bit, cash is going down even more, right? So you can't own cash, you can't own bonds, stocks are getting killed. So gold is the best place to be. And I've long said that if the Fed actually raises interest rates to fight inflation, gold is going to get crushed, but stock prices will get crushed even more. So either way you slice it, I think it's still safe to be in gold here, even if the Fed is going to raise rates higher as we move into the next coming months. And in fact, what would be best for the gold trade is if Powell and the Federal Reserve raise interest rates enough 
to put the economy in a severe recession in the next couple months and then therefore put themselves in a situation where they have no choice but to come in and stimulate the economy, thus boosting the gold price and getting it to move back north above 2000 and potentially to three or $4,000 an ounce. But getting back to earnings, lastly, we had Dollar Tree reported. They reported that they're having cost pressures. So again, they're going to have to keep raising prices. So Dollar Tree is no longer the Dollar Tree. They're now the Dollar 25 tree. Soon they're going to be the Dollar 50 tree. And again, inflation is continuing to pick up. But Dollar Tree is starting to see more and more store traffic. They're taking more market share because, again, people can't afford to stop to shop at the more expensive big box retailers. They got to go to Dollar Tree and Dollar General. A lot of people have been buying food at these places because it's cheaper to get it there. More signs that the consumer is weak, that inflation is continuing to pick up. And lastly, a firm reported earnings. Again, this is a uh, lender in the secondary markets. They do. Uh, they have deal with Amazon. People can use their service. It's buy now, pay later stock. This stock continues to get crushed because, again, the consumer is weak. Uh, the consumer is going to default on a lot of the loans that this company is making. But again, when you look at these earnings reports, the consumer is slowing, the economy is slowing, and pressures on costs continue to rise. So pressures on inflation are going to continue to rise for the foreseeable future. Now, one of the things that I do want to talk about is student loans. Of course, this week, Joe Biden announced the forgiveness of $10,000 of federal student loans for anybody who has an outstanding student loan that has a household income of less than $125,000. But first, before I get into that, I want to talk about a point that I made, I heard, uh, People were talking about how during the pandemic lows, when the market was uh, crashing and the Dow went from about 28,000 to about 18,000, there was really a big flow of money that came in and bought those stocks on the dips. And normally when you have a panic like that, people don't come in and buy stocks. But in this panic that we had during the COVID pandemic, people actually came in and bought stocks. And I heard a financial advisor making the point that that shows that the retail trader or investor is is more uh, is is smarter now than they've been in the past because of that. But this is so misguided because the reason that in panics people don't typically tend to buy stocks on the dip is because people don't have any money with which to buy stocks with. So if you go back to say, for example, the 2008 financial crisis when the markets crashed, right? people didn't come in and buy stocks after the markets crashed because people did not have any money with which to buy stocks with because we were in a severe recession. We were in a financial panic. We were heading for what was going to be a depression before all of the bailouts came out. But people didn't have any money to buy stocks with. But in the pandemic lows, what happened? People were given unextended unemployment benefits. They were given PPP loans. They were given stimulus checks, right? A lot of people actually were making more money because of the pandemic than they would have made had we never had a pandemic. So that surplus money went right into the stock market, right? A lot of people took their stimulus checks 
and they were making more money on extended unemployment. So they just took their stimulus checks and put it directly into the stock market, which is one of the reasons why we had such a quick rally off those lows. And within, I believe, 26 days we from bottoming, we were headed for new highs because, again, people had excess money because of the pandemic. And also a lot of people did not lose their jobs, right? A lot of people lost their jobs in consumer discretionary areas, like a lot of restaurant workers or bar workers or hotel workers. A lot of people in leisure and hospitality lost their jobs. But a lot of people that had higher income jobs kept their jobs and still were able to receive stimulus checks and all sorts of government bailouts. And so they had extra money to put into the market. But a big part of the investment world now is people contributing to their 401k or their IRAs. And so to the extent that a lot of people in upper income areas did not lose their jobs, they were able to continue to invest with their 401k because, again, they didn't have a loss of income. And so therefore, that's what propelled the stock market to recover so quickly off the pandemic lows. Now, if we head into a severe recession, another pressure that's going to be put on the stock market is a lot of people that have jobs now that are contributing to their 401k. If they lose their job, they're no longer going to be contributing to a 401k. So there's less flows going into the market. So that's going to be another pressure on markets as we move deeper into this recession. You're going to have less people that are employed contributing to 401ks. And you're also going to have a much weaker consumer that has no money to continue to invest in the market. Again, I mentioned the savings rate for the last month being the lowest since August 2009. If people don't have any money left to save and therefore invest because they're spending all their money on food and gas and insurance, well, that's going to put more headwinds for the market. And so I can't see a scenario where we start hitting new all-time record highs Again, for the foreseeable future, it's probably going to take a minimum of a couple of years before the market starts hitting new highs and gets out of this bear market. That's what I've been saying. This is going to be a long bear market that's going to last for a very long time. And again, this recession is going to last for a very long time. So again, why you would own cyclical stocks here, it makes absolutely no sense. But getting back into student loan forgiveness, which just was announced this week, If you've been listening to this podcast for a long time, I talked a while ago when the Trump administration placed the moratoriums on student loans. I said that student loans had basically unofficially been forgiven because one of the problems is when you place that moratorium on student loans, now in order to get that moratorium to end, you're going to have to have a politician come in and actually make it come to an end. And no politician wants to come out and say, vote for me and I will start making you pay your student loans back. Now, of course, there's a lot of outrage, as there should be, from the Republican side of the aisle on student loan forgiveness. But again, it's a very difficult task to have a politician try and force people to start paying back their loans once a moratorium has been placed. But this week, Joe Biden announced that $10,000 of federal student loan balances are going to be wiped out for anyone who has a federal student loan, uh, and they make less than $125,000, which is most of the people who have outstanding federal student loan debt. Um, He also extended the moratorium for people. They don't have to continue to make payments on their loans right now. They don't have to, they're not accruing interest on those loans. 
But there is going to be more student loan forgiveness in the pipeline because for one, again, the Democrats are doing this for their voter base, right? Why did Joe Biden make student loans uh, forgiveness a campaign promise? Well, because he was trying to buy votes. And so with the midterm elections coming up and then with the re-election coming up in a few years, there's going to be more pressure to forgive even more student loans. But of course, the the economic impact of this is now that more student loan forgiveness is out there, colleges can go and raise their tuition again because they know that people are going to be more likely to take more loans out to pay those higher tuition prices if necessary. And it's such a moral hazard because... There are so many people who either paid for college out of their own pocket or their parents saved the money to pay for them or they went to college on student loan debt, but they paid their student loan debt off. They were responsible enough to do that, but now they're being punished because other people who took out those loans are having those loans forgiven partially. So again, you're getting screwed if you do the right thing, if you do the, or sorry, you're getting screwed if you do the right thing and you're getting rewarded for doing the wrong thing. But think about all the people who instead of like, instead of uh, taking vacations and buying a nice car, they saved for their kids college and paid for it in cash. Yet they may know someone who didn't save any money, went on vacations and then took on student loan debts for their kids. Now they're getting a windfall. It's creating a moral hazard. So with student loan debt forgiveness now being something that's an actual thing in the government and with college costs going to continue to rise, nobody is going to pay for college in cash because there's a potential that any loans you take out are going to be forgiven in the future. In fact, Joe Biden announced programs that there can be more student loan forgiveness. I'm not going to get into all the details, but in the future, a lot of student loans have the potential to be forgiven. So basically now nobody is going to save cash to pay for college in cash, but instead there's a lot more demand now to go for college because of potential student loan forgiveness. And so what is it, what does the supply and demand curve say? If demand increases for something and the supply stays the same, the price has to go up. So now college costs are going to get even more expensive for the next generation. And again, they're already entirely too expensive for this generation. So there's a moral hazard here. Again, look at the implications on the federal budget. All of the federal budgets that have been created were assuming that all these student loans were going to be paid back. But instead, now a lot of this student loan uh, revenue that was supposed to come in for the government is no longer going to come in, which means higher budget deficits. And so that means more inflation in the future, because to the extent we have a budget deficit, Either the government has to borrow more money from the market or they have to borrow more money from the Federal Reserve, which is printing it. Either way, it's more of an expansion of the supply of money and credit in the future, which again is inflationary. And speaking of inflation, to the extent you had a student loan and you were pay- you had that $10,000 outstanding balance and now you don't have that $10,000 outstanding balance, that gives you $10,000 of room to go and spend money on goods and services in the economy, which is basically like a stimulus. And if you've learned anything from the pandemic, anytime we have a stimulus that causes prices to rise even more. So this is going to put so much upward pressure on inflation. Again, all investors in the market remain completely oblivious to this. 
how bad the inflation problem is and how much of an interest rate increase it's going to take from the Fed to actually fight it. See, that's, again, the difference between me and most investors in the market right now. Most investors think that if the Federal Reserve gets rates to four or five percent, that's going to be enough to kill inflation. I know that that's not going to come anywhere close to killing inflation. If we're going to stop inflation, we're going to need interest rates at 10, 15, 20 percent. And not only that, but the government is going to have to stop all these stimulus programs and budget increases to forgive student loans and whatnot. And that is not going to happen. There is still $1.7 trillion of outstanding student loan debt in the economy. And that's going to be forgiven. But even if it doesn't get forgiven, a lot of it will be defaulted on because, again, people have been struggling to make student loan payments over the past couple of years in a booming economy where inflation, where unemployment levels are at historic lows. So if we head deeper into recession and unemployment levels start to pick up and go to four or five, six, seven, eight percent, how are people going to pay back their student loans in that type of an economy when they haven't been able to pay the student loans back in an economy that is at full employment? So again, there is tons of inflation pressure in the pipeline. The Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates enough to give the impression they're fighting inflation, but they're not going to raise interest rates enough to actually kill inflation. The only thing they're going to do is raise interest rates high enough and accidentally kill the stock market and kill the economy, but inflation is going to continue to run out of control. And the economy will continue to deteriorate as we move into September, October. And, you know, October is a very ominous time for the stock market. Both the 1929 and 1987 stock market crashes occurred in October. And with the setup we have here from the Fed raising interest rates and shrinking their balance sheet starting September, supposedly, the consumer weakening and the continued acceleration of inflation is going to cause a severe recession that is going to get much worse. And this is a very ominous time for those who remain bullish on the U.S. economy and U.S. stocks in general.